1: Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Mark Clegg, author of Oh Say Can You Hear?, a cultural biography of the Star-Spangled Banner published by Norton in 2022. Francis Scott Key wrote the lyric to what would become the American National Anthem around the time of a battle he witnessed during the War of 1812 between the United States and Britain. As was the custom at the time, he intended for the words to be sung to a pre tune that potential performers would have known. By the time Congress officially named the song the U.S.'s anthem in 1931, it was merely ratifying what had already become a cultural tradition. The star-spangled banner has its detractors. The melody is difficult to sing. The words are hard to remember and militaristic. Francis Scott Key was a slaveholder, and the word slave appears in the third verse. Clegg takes on this seemingly straightforward history and more recent controversy by busting myths about the anthem, delving deep into the history of the song from its composition until the present, and highlighting some key performances that have helped to shape Americans' understanding of their country and themselves. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today, Mark.
0: My pleasure, Kristen. It's great to be here.
1: So um, how did you come to the topic of writing about this particular song? Well, I think
0: probably for two reasons. I mean, one is that um, I was born in 1966 since so I was nine years old in 1976 when America celebrated its bicentennial. And that was a pretty ecstatic, like indoctrinating, patriotic, rah-rah time in American history. Um, and I, being you know nine years old, thought that was pretty awesome and wore my little tri-cornered hat and put red, white and blue streamers on my bike in the neighborhood parade. And so I think the ideals of the country and sort of that that story we've wanted to tell about ourselves patriotically has was something that i imbibed very deeply at that moment and so patriotic symbols and and this has always resonated with me in an important way and then most specifically, this um, book really comes out of my class. So I teach an introduction to um, music in the United States, and um, it's for music majors. And it's really to open up the question of like, how does music function in their world, in their life, and their environment? It's In a sense, it almost bridges kind of like anthropology, ethnomusicology, and musicology, looking at music in the students' own lives and their, their time, their place. And so I kick off that course with Jimi Hendrix, 1969 at Woodstock, playing the Star Spangled Banner to complicate the notion of, of like how music can speak to us. Um, you know, in this case, purely instrumental music, no, no overt words, although Hendrix is pretty much singing the words with his guitar, if you listen carefully. But um, unpacking that performance really sort of Shows that the, the interpenetration of patriot, patriotism and politics, and you know, I think in some ways a very sincere hope for America that that sort of this new generation of of the youth are going to sort of redefine what it means to be American at that moment. So Hendrix really complicates the anthem, um, and sort of says says America's great, but it's not quite what it should be. Right at the same time, so. I want to get students to think more deeply. And of course they did. And they started asking me questions like, well, where's this song from? And what did it originally sound like? And who wrote it and why? And what do these words mean? And that's, you know, sent me to the archive as it would for any, any historian. And what I found there just sort of blew my mind. There's way more information than I expected. Um, I had sort of heard that, you know, initial story. It's Francis Scott Key. He's a prisoner on a British ship, and he sort of has this flash of inspiration, sees the flag, writes, and the lyric just sort of tumbles out. The, uh, the truth is, is way more um, sort of prosaic, but also way more interesting. And that's, that's sort of what led to the book.
1: So before we get into sort of basic um, information and sort of going over kind of more um, specific details, I would love to just talk about the anthem in a more broad sense first. And uh, you wrote in the conclusion a statement that I thought was really um, on point with this. You wrote, the banner is not only an allegory of democracy, it serves as a primary document, a living record of the American experience and flux. Can you explain what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, so my my book is called A Cultural Biography of a Song of the Star-Spangled Banner. And I sort of and this is really a sort of reaction to the way, for me, that the banner is alive—that it's that it's a mutable, changing thing. It, it and I, I, even so much as it being an actor, like having an impact and, and changing the way Americans have thought about what it means to be American. Um, so I, I really see the Star Spangled Banner as a living symbol, as a, and I think you know, a flag is something we look at, and a song is something we sing, and that that singing that bring need to bring it to life in performance also renews and sort of makes the anthem, you know, which is 208 years old at this point, but makes it always already alive and contemporary. So I think that's part of what I was getting at that, that, you know, the the meaning of the anthem is in flux. And I think a lot of the book is about the ways in which the anthem is not just one thing, and not just a sort of immutable sacred icon that embalms a particular moment in American history, and, and can only represent that one thing, but actually is a tool that Americans have used Used to be a kind of mirror of their experience, to be a, a, a megaphone, an amplifier of their experience. Um, you know, not only in the way it's performed, a la someone like Jimi Hendrix or John Batiste or Whitney Houston, but but also in the 19th century, like writing new words for the anthem, which was really common. You know, sounds like completely crazy to us today, but actually was a very typical thing in the 19th century. So, you know, f- for me, you know, the anthem, the way it functions to bring us together, to, to sort of create. The illusion, you know, of a unified country. Um, and that illusion then becomes real if people believe in it, right? And so the thing that song does is it recruits emotion in the service of ideas. And that's what, what music can do. The power of music is to bring that emotion to it. And, and when you know we talk about patriotism as kind of love of country, right? And and couples, you know, often have their their song, right? they like music becomes representative of their relationship. And so I think for us, the anthem is representative of that relationship between Americans and their nation. And so, you know, all of those things I think are, are alive and, and have this real potential to add meaning and depth to our understanding of, of the song and how music works in our life.
1: Um, you mentioned that the Star-Spangled Banner is now 208 years old, and anything that old is, pr- especially as famous as this song is, is bound to have a lot of myths and uh, misunderstandings about it. Um, you know, in a popular memory that has some truth but a lot of myth mixed in. Can you tell us what you discovered in your research is the actual truth about both the lyric that Francis Scott Key wrote and sort of you know, what was happening when he wrote that, um, but also about the tune that he set it to.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I think what I heard when I was nine years old at the, the Bicentennial was that Francis Scott Key wrote, you know, a a poem and that that, that poem was, you know, set to music by somebody else, um, that he was a prisoner aboard a British ship and that he had sort of this flash of inspiration. Um, all of those turn out to be, you know, sort of where where there's myth, there's some kind of hazy truth. But when you get into the details, history is always way more fascinating than the received wisdom. So um, he didn't write a poem. He wrote a lyric. So he wrote words intentionally with a melody already in his head, where he was matching new words to a tune. So nobody in the future figured out that these tunes matched. Francis Scott Key imagined them to be together from the very beginning. So he wrote a song because it was always words plus music from the very very beginning. Um, another thing is, yeah, you know, he didn't write it on the back of an envelope like that sometimes said, or the um, back of, of a piece of paper. He was on a. a American diplomatic vessel his own truce vessel. he was not on a British ship um, during the Battle of Baltimore um, he was under guard so in a sense he was a prisoner so that's true but there was plenty of paper on this ship like they, they wrote out you know agreements and new new uh, treaties and new you know he was negotiating the release of prisoners and so there's lots of paper around Francis Scott key largely worked from memory in his head and he might have taken a few jotted a few notes down but um, he he worked you know, out of his sort of mind's imagination. Um, the other thing is he had actually written a previous song to the exact same tune in 1805. Um, its um, lyric begins, When the Warrior Returns, and it's a, a song celebrating the heroism of Stephen Decatur Jr. and Charles Stewart, who were heroes in the Tripolitan War. They uh, boarded an American ship that had been captured, the USS Philadelphia, and unable to free it, they set it afire to prevent the enemy from having the ship. So those um military naval heroes were in washington dc right at the same time that francis Scott key arrived to establish his legal career and you know what you did was write these new words to popular tunes to comment on the day's events and it was a way that you sort of showed you were sort of creative and intelligent and part of the community and and that you were sort of plugged in in a sense and so it's it's almost a kind of you know announcement of francis Scott key's um creativity and eloquence as a, as a young lawyer sort of moving into the district of Columbia to sort of help build the nation. Um, he wrote this previous song called when the warrior returns and it's exactly the same melody we know as the star Spangled Banner, you know, when the warrior returns from the battle of Far." so same, same tune, um, same rhythm when he's in, uh, his ship, um, after the Battle of Baltimore, he's actually stuck there for three days. So it's not a flash of inspiration. It's actually a very carefully constructed um, lyric, and actually a sort of a political propaganda tool. So this is not just a a neutral. Um, lyric that's just reflecting this moment of heroism. It's it's really constructing a nation. I think this is one of the most interesting things about the song is like people wonder today, like when Colin Kaepernick kneels or you know there's some protest around the Star Spangled Banner. Like there's there's some people who are offended and say, you know, the politics and the Star Spangled Banner shouldn't mix. Well that that has has never been true. Um, it's always been a political song from the very, very beginning. Francis Scott Key wrote it as a political song. It's a propaganda song and that imagines a strong country where a weak country existed. I mean, you remember that we're fighting the British. It's sometimes in the War of 1812, it's sometimes called the Second um, War of Independence. But the British are harassing shipping in the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, they a month before the Battle of Baltimore that's memorialized in Key's lyric, they march into Washington, D.C., almost unopposed. They burn the White House and the... the um, capital to the ground, along with the Navy Yard. So as, a, as really an insult to the young country to say, you know, you can't protect your own capital. Um, we're, we are the power of the seas, the, the military power on the globe. And, you know, you need, you, our former colony needs to behave itself. So it's uh, it's not a moment of real, you know, pride or achievement in American history. I think today, you know, sort of post-World War II, post the United States becoming a nuclear superpower, the role we had in, in World War II, um, you know, we sort of, in a sense, fulfilled this vision that Francis Fukuyama had as a strong nation, as a nation that was respected globally. You know, one that was unified, one that was what had a strong military that could, you know, defend. Defend itself. Um, that was not true in 1814, but it, it feels to us now like this is a timeless ballad. But it's not. It's it's a very cont- you know sort of um, topical ballad that's that's really speaking to that very moment. But in abstract terms, using the flag as a symbol, which is why I think we can still sing it today, whereas all these other lyrics that were written to the tune. You know, we're all very specific to certain. They would mention people's names, for example, um, that that didn't allow them to become a national symbol, sort of separated from its particular moment or event of creation. So, um, you know, there is just a lot of really interesting detail about the song once you get into the into the the sort of archive, and it was a fascinating and long journey for me to do all this research.
1: So, uh, obviously, that you are talking about the text being. Um, a product of its time, even though we might think of it as being completely timeless and not having a real political uh, context of its own. What about the tune? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think the myth is it was a drinking song, but it's far more complicated and interesting than that.
0: No, that's a great question. And uh, so the, the tune is written by a composer named John Stafford Smith, who ironically is one of the court composers of King George, right? So the guy who we revolt against in the, both the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. So he was a um, religious, a sacred music composer attached to the Royal Chapel in London, Um, He comes from Gloucester, which is about 100 miles uh, west of of London. Is a you know child musician raised by a a father who's also a religious you know um, sacred composer and choral master. And so, um, but he's he also writes you know, popular song for these early clubs in sort of English culture. And it's sort of an interesting moment because it's a moment where we're sort of a middle class, you know, bourgeois, you know, public culture is starting to, to grow up in London and really throughout Europe. So this is about um, 1763 is when the Anacreontic Society, which is a amateur musicians club is founded. And the, um, or 1766, sorry. Um, it's 1773 that the we know this song exists. So it was probably written earlier in that year, and it's sort of the club anthem of this musicians club. So one of the questions about the Star Spangled Banner that always comes up is that. And I think this was in your intro that it's hard to sing, right? It's got these high notes, and you know it takes sort of a, a semi-pro or pro singer to pull this off, not the average citizen. Well, that that's not a mistake. That's not an accident. That was intentional because, of course, it's it's the club anthem of a musicians' club, and they want to show that they are the most talented, skilled, best club in in the city. So they want a theme song that's going to show off the talent of their singers and the. The members of this club were, you know, early business leaders, early professionals, doctors, lawyers, um, people who were creating this culture outside of the, you know, court at Buckingham Palace, and uh, but it also included as honorary mes- uh, members uh, professional musicians, most explicitly the singers from the early Broadway West End shows in London. So there were, you know, basically, if you think about Broadway singers today, these are really skilled singers, they can certainly hit all the high notes. And they would have been honorary members of the club and probably the people who were were singing the anachronic song as part of the, the meetings. But this is, you know, I think the drinking club sort of myth has a couple of origins one of them is true which is certainly this is a gentleman's club um there are no women around um this is sort of the early days of public culture they met in a coffee house which is sort of a you know lots of things were served there other than coffee you know shrub and early drinks and and alcohol um this is a time in sort of uh the history of public health where if you're going to drink anything it has to either be fermented or boiled right because there's no water treatment um, so there certainly is plenty of alcohol involved in these meetings but these meetings are not held in a sort of typical pub certainly by the time the club has become this popular as to have a theme song they they started out with like a, a, a musical concert that was a couple hours long It would have chamber music string quartets vocal solos early symphonies concertants um overtures and then after two hours they would have dinner Um, And then they would get back together for an evening of songs, sort of like an episode of Glee, if you will, with all the men gathering around singing songs. And these songs often had like a solo part and then a chorus where the members would echo the song back. So that's actually one of the really interesting things about the Anacreontic song as a sort of musical model for the Star Spangled Banner and for early American political discourse is that it had a chorus. So today we just sing the verse through has eight lines, right? And we get to that last two lines, um, O say that star-spangled banner yet wave the land of the free and the home of the brave? Well, that, that started out as something that would be sung twice, first by a soloist who had the talent to hit all those high notes, but then also echoed back by the crowd, right? And so there was this kind of like conversation that was happening. In the Anacreontic Society, this was between the pres- club president or, or his designee, this talented West End singer, um, singing this, the music. And then the membership of the club would echo back those two lines, right? So in early American political discourse, when Francis Scott Key is writing "When the Warrior Returns" to celebrate these naval heroes in 1805, you know a soloist sings the song, and then everybody there who's at the dinner to honor them shouts back the last two lines to say, "Yeah, hooray for the heroes!" Right? So there's a there's a way in which the song, as a political document, um, makes a statement and then recruits support from the audience. Right? So it's a great tune for political meetings, for rallies, you know, sort of early American political discourse happened in this way. And the same thing happens with, with um, the Star Spangled Banner. You say, oh, say, is the flag still there? And then the, the whole crowd basically shots back. Yeah, it's there, right? So there's this, this sort of community building aspect to the early uses of the music. But so I don't call it a drinking song. I call it a club song, not a pub song, because when we think of drinking songs, we think of songs that are sort of sung by people who are already rolling in the cups and, you know, can't can't keep two words together. Um, This is a pretty high class affair. You know, sort of if you think about like the Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin set in their white wigs, that was the kind of person who would have been at these club meetings. But they were there to celebrate the art of music. They were not there to celebrate the art of drinking. Um, On the other hand, their meetings, you know, when they got really popular, happened at a place called the Crown and Anchor Tavern. And so that's another reason why it's thought to be a drinking song. The Crown and Anchor Tavern was a, a big event space on the Strand in downtown London that had a ballroom that could hold 600 people. So this is, again, it's not a little town pub. It's not the public house. This is a big event space. And calling it the Town and Anchor, um, tavern gave it a sense that it was homey and that the food would really be good. But like the early proms concerts happened in the Crown and Anchor Tavern. This was a, this was a huge music venue, not a little pub.
1: Um, well, that then begs the question as how does a tune that is steeped in um, British upper class, or at least upper middle class and upper class um culture? How does it make it over to the United States uh, in this period right after or right around the the revolution?
0: Yeah, so this is one of the questions I think I figured out for my book. So in 1793, a group of actors called the Old American Company come over from London to the young United States and basically try to make a career out of touring from town to town. And there are the very first newspaper um, account in the New World, in the United States, of a performance of the Anacreontic Song, which is what the tune was originally known as, um, happened in Charleston, South Carolina, and was sung by these actors. And it was very typical for actors in this era and musicians to have what's called benefit concerts, where they would Um, host a special night, you know, for their own benefit and their fans and supporters would come and buy tickets and they would get a hundred percent of that income as sort of bonus pay, if you would. Um, This was typical in Europe and then it was used by the old American company when they were touring in the United States. And one of the things you needed to put on was a show with very little rehearsal. And so one of the, the typical formats was a kind of variety show, right? So we just want a bunch of songs and then at the end we want to get everybody together and get them up on their feet and cheering and wanting, wanting more, sort of built in standing ovation, if you will. So what one of the sort of uh, dramatizations or skits that would be used for these benefit concerts was a kind of recreation of an anacreontic society meeting, particularly that song portion at the end of their meetings in London. And... It, it was both very practical and very dramatic. So you would have just a series of soloists as a, or maybe duets, um, quartets. You know, people singing songs, keeping everyone entertained. And then, while an Anacreontic Society club meeting would start with the Anacreontic song, these skits would end with the Anacreontic song as a big rousing finale, because they would get everybody back on stage as if they were. Members of the Anacreontic Society Club. You would have the whatever actor, you know, who was the star of the show would take on that role of the club president, would sing the solo, and then all of the other singers would echo back in that chorus with that that dialogue we talked about earlier, and they would encourage the audience to join in, right? And so it would create this big sort of rousing finale. But it, from a practical standpoint, it was really easy. You didn't need to have a big rehearsal. You didn't have to have staging. You didn't have to have you know sets and costumes and all that. You could just basically get all your friends together from the company. They would all sing songs. Then you'd have this rousing finale that would make everybody, you know, you know, leave them all excited and wanting more. So this, this dramatization of the anacreontic Society, which was, you know, sort of a spoof of the, you know, upper crust in America and in, in London. And so, some of this, you know, drinking song reputation could have also come from that because they played up the the drunkenness of these meetings and the sort of debauchery of the meetings um, as as a kind of comic effect. So I think that's, that also may be where that, that sort of reputation of the song comes from, but it was a group of actors from London, probably those same actors who would have been involved in singing at anacrantic side meetings. And so they knew the tune who would do these skits that would recreate the meetings that, that was how it came to America. And we know directly that this, their performances led to the use of the Anacreontic melody as a broadside ballad tune, as one of these tunes that American um, poets and lyricists wrote these, these new topical lyrics for, because they did, you know, after Charleston, they went to Philadelphia, they went to Boston, they went to New York. And in 1793, in the summer, there was another benefit concert in New York and three weeks later, the very first political parody, the very first new set of words written to this tune, which was a, a tune celebrating the heroism of uh, the French and the French Revolution, that that popped up. And so, and it was written by a woman, which is really interesting. It's credited to a woman named Julia. Um, and that was the first time that you know this tradition of writing new words had been sort of adopted in the United States to this particular tune. And it's, it's published in the exact same newspaper paper in the exact same city that the announcement for the the performance by the Old American Company was made. So there's a direct connection between these these actors and the popularization of the tune in America.
1: Well that is a tour de force of research that is very cool that you that you figured that out. Um.
0: Well, some of it's, you know, I would love to say it's my brilliance, but it's it's also that, you know, one of the fun things that's available today is are all these databases of early American newspapers. And the lovely thing about Anacreontic and Spangled is that they, on one hand, they're they're talked about a lot, but usually only specifically about these this music or about the flag. So it, it becomes really useful keywords to searching through enormous amounts of newspaper accounts to try to pull out these this evidence of this. Um, you know, these actors moving up and down the coast?
1: Well, I don't know how I would do my own research without those uh, uh, databases. I mean, I think it's been really revolutionized Print media research to have the ability to look across so many different publications over a period of time, because um, that would be it would have been a lot harder to unearth if you had to look at every single newspaper, um, you know, and just flip through every page like that doesn't work. So um, that that is a great use of that that uh, research resource. Um, so you you made it pretty clear that that what Francis Scott Key was doing was something that lots of people were doing, that he was partaking in uh, the political culture of the day that people wrote these poems and they had a sort of a set number of tunes that everybody knew that they could write their lyric for. So in a lot of ways, it was just a a normal thing to do in that period in in U.S. history. There are literally thousands and thousands of those poems and you know there's not as big a repertoire of tunes but there's a fair number somehow this particular lyric with this particular tune is in use Uh, you know, without interruption all the way until today. And that is incredibly unusual for one of these, you know, texts to last five years, much less 200. So why do you think that this combination was so powerful that people remembered it after the initial political context had passed?
0: No, that's a great question. Um, Well, one thing I think is is the role of the War of eighteen twelve in American history. Um, It's interesting because you know in the last decade or so we've had the two hundredth anniversary of the War of eighteen twelve and it's gotten a lot of attention and and um, but in my American history classes, like when I was in college and in high school, War of eighteen twelve was not a thing. Like you just didn't talk about it, right? Because Politically, it, the borders of the United States stay the same. Nothing nothing changes in the law. There's like no territories added or lost. Um, it's basically this big kerfuffle and everything goes back to the way it was, more or less. Um There are some things like the the British were on on our coast and did free many black American slaves and and those people did gain their freedom. So there are a few things that changed um, for some individuals. But as a country, this is not a war that gets a lot of attention. The one thing that I think did get created by the War of 1812 was actually American patriotism. So the Star Spangled Banner, the flag... Um, you know, which is sort of the sacred object um, that today that's in every school and whatnot, was not a big deal in 1814. It was not something that was in every schoolroom. It was not in every house. In fact, it was like on military forts and American ships. That was the only place you bothered. Um, In the War of 1812, when Francis Key wrote the famous lyric that became the national anthem, there were 18 states and there were only 15 stars on the flag and nobody cared. Right. This was not a problem because the symbol was not important. Right. There were lots of symbols. There were Liberty Poles and Liberty Caps. And, you know, we didn't even have the phrase the Star Spangled Banner. Right. It was it was called "our Glory. It was called the Flag of the United States. But it was Francis Scott Key's lyric that coins the phrase the Star Spangled Banner, which then becomes the Name of our flag, and there's a kind of symbiotic relationship between flag and song that's sort of born in this moment in 1814. But um, other symbols like Uncle Sam is a product of the War of 1812. You know, so in a way, everything goes back to the way it was. But the big change was that Americans knew they had kicked the British out, right? That they sort of won the War of 1812. It was sort of the first galvanizing moment of of American military pride. Um, it created you know military heroes like Andrew Jackson who became president right so there's 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 lots of sort of the idea of America was both put under threat and almost lost because of the burning of the white house but also recovered and and sort of put back together by the war of 1812 and so i think there's this wave if you will of patriotic sentiment that happens after the battle of baltimore which is sort of where the the battle turns where the war turns i mean initially the united states was dominant because Britain was largely tied down fighting Napoleon in, in continental Europe. And then when, when Napoleon is defeated, then like the real troops show up in the, in America in 1814, and we can't handle them. Um, so it's, but that, the battle of Baltimore is the point where it turned. And then the battle of New Orleans is the point of victory in the United States. And so I think that America, the idea of America in a sense as a powerful unified nation, as a, not a group, a confederacy of States, but as a unified country is sort of born at this moment. And I think that's the wave that sort of propels the Star Spangled Banner, which both helps create that idea and accelerate the idea that's already existent. I mean, and and one of the cool things in my book, you know, I think maybe the most successful paragraph when people read it and they're then they're like stunned is where I discuss the lyrics and the way pronouns are used. And I actually argue that the the most important word in the Star Spangled Banner is, is the, the third one. Oh, say, well, it's the fourth one. Oh, say, can you, why are you? That that, that, that puts the, the singer, the listener, the p- person as part of this ritual of um, American patriotism and nationalism that we have at the beginning of every sporting event, civic ritual, things like that. It puts the individual in sort of dialogue with the song and dialogue with the country. But if you look at the, the lyric, the way the pronouns are used changes pretty strategically from you to we and us, right? So, oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved terms and war of um, desperate desolation, you know, it's, so we're, we're free men, you know, we are, we are an us, we are the, we are collective, we, we are a group, we are a nation. And so the, the lyric starts out with the individual, you know, and the flag and it really becomes the, the whole country. Um, and so that's why I say that the, the Star Spangled Banner is not like a, just a lyric that's slapdash the sort of moment of inspiration, and, but it's a very carefully constructed sort of document of political construction because it actually helps build the nation itself. And I think that's why this one song survived and none of them, another rest did. The other reason is probably just as important, which is that Francis Scott Key's own lyrics tend towards this abstract use of symbolism and so he chooses the flag. The flag, of course, becomes the symbol of and sacred symbol of a nation during the civil war, which I think is an important inflection time for the history of the song. But also Francis Key didn't know anything about the battle. Like he was stuck on this boat, like eight miles from Fort McHenry, Nobody was telling him what was going on. He couldn't look at his phone and just get the update on Twitter. Like, he didn't know that General Armistead was defending the Ford, and he didn't know that you know Major General Robert Ross, the British you know leader, had been killed by an American sniper. Like, all these really important things in the battle, he had no idea of the details, right? So all he did is he saw the flag and knew what it meant, what it felt like to know that the country had sort of been preserved, the idea of America. And so he his lyrics only about the idea, whereas he has no... Sp- specifics, no names of any individual. Um, whereas most of these lyrics, these topical lyrics, you know, are written to sp- sp- with specifics about the people and the places that are being Discussed, and he, Key's lyric is so abstract that we can still sing it today at a football stadium, and it can represent the nation. But if, if he had, you know, if he had talked about Mc, Fort McHenry and General Armistead and Major General Ross, and if all those, it would it would have made this, the lyric dated and too topical and specific to that time. But because he didn't know what was going on, and he's just writing in the abstract about these ideas, he wrote a lyric, an, an, a unique lyric among this political discourse that actually could transcend its moment of creation.
1: Well, that also makes me think about one of the other things that um, I think for a modern day um, listener or singer for this Star, for the Star Spangled Banner can be, has become um, controversial and I think largely misunderstood because the sort of, in the very recent times um, since Black Lives Matter, there's been a discourse around that Francis Scott Key was a slaveholder. There's this word slave in the third verse. And, um, you know, some real critique for, uh, for both Key and the, the um the song is uh, itself as being too steeped in enslavement to be an appropriate um, work for the nation. But what you but what you talk about is it's so much more complicated than that. And I think it also reveals how we you know it's so easy to look at everything in these very stark binaries, yes or no. And when you go back to the 19th century, you realize it's so much more complicated. Um, this issue of enslavement and how people at the time thought about it and interacted with it. And it's, it's too easy to say, um, this, he did this terrible thing and we're done, right. We need to think about it more closely. So can you, can can you, can, can you explain, excuse me, um, his entanglement with enslavement and what that word slave means in that third verse?
0: Yeah, no, that's an amazing, amazing point. And I think, you know, the, the idea of America, I mean, our whole history is wrapped up in this slavery question for, you know, until the end of the Civil War. And then after, you know, post-Reconstruction, sort of those problems come roaring back, of racism, and we're still struggling with them today. So, you know, I I think the critiques today that, you know, American history has not dealt with the slavery question are correct. You know, we haven't, and we haven't dealt with this as a society. And so there's something, you know, that seems so right about the fact that, the Star Spangled Banner is racist, and it's got this word "slave" in it. And see here, it's been hiding in plain sight, and everybody's been denying that it's there. So, and and, and sort of a symbolic level, that's certainly true. I mean, Francis Cutkey was a slaveholder; he did he did own people as as labor um, in his house in Georgetown, and then also he he bought his father and mo- mother's farm in uh, Frederick, Maryland, and there were um, enslaved people attached to that household as well. Um, Francis C- Key, however, was a lawyer in the District of Columbia, he was not a major plantation owner. And so I think some of the my book is a reaction to the the, the painting of Francis Scott Key as, as sort of only the bad guy. And as you pointed out, the good guy, bad guy, you know, sort of narrative of, of history doesn't really apply very well to this pre-Civil War period where the entire sort of legal apparatus of the nation has is wrapped around this sort of, unethical, inhuman compromise to allow a nation that's founded on freedom and breaking away from England to be to embrace slave labor. Right. So how can you have freedom and slavery existing side by side? Well you can't. You have to you have to have this kind of you know completely illogical compromise. And time and again in American history, from the Constitution through you know the Missouri Compromise, you know, we politicians found a way to have it both ways. And so this both ways idea is really more typical of the first 100 years of American history. And Francis Key is a both ways figure, right? So he he both owns people as enslaved labor, and he fights for freedom of black Americans in court, um, who he feels are unjustly enslaved. And he wins a surprising number of these cases. He's actually responsible for the freedom of at least 189 people and he probably, in in terms of the number of slaves he owned, probably a a dozen. I mean, nobody knows exactly that I know anyway. Um, But he frees the first um, person that he owned in 1811. So three years before writing the Star-Spangled Banner. And this is a little girl named Kitty who as far as the record can tell, he actually purchased this person with the intent of, of freeing them to their mother. So he's He's a weird kind of figure because he's a, both an anti slavery activist and a slave owner. And that just doesn't compute. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. But if you're, if he claimed to be a pragmatist, a political pragmatist, trying to find a solution to a problem where nobody got hurt. And of course, that was the. The absolute fantasy, right, was that you slavery could be ended in the United States without a war, without something you know that would really upset the social order. Um, And so, I think think he is is trying the impossible, and but I think he believes that he can make a difference in that. He is one of the founders of the American Colonization Society, which led to the creation of Liberia and the freeing of many um, enslaved people in the United States, and then, of course, sending them quote unquote back to Africa, which is impossible because they are Americans. They're not Africans, right? So there's something just fundamentally racist about that. But, you know, he's dealing with a racist country. Um, and I, we, we did sort of embrace racism at this time. Um, so, you know, I think he is a complicated figure. The word slave in the Star Spangled Banner, which, you know, when you put it in context, it's a, as I said earlier, it's a political propaganda lyric calling for a strong unified country. So the, one of the worst things to do in that would be to, to actually invoke the controversy of legalized slavery in the United States, because that was something that divided people. Um, what's weird, if you go back and look at early American patriotic poetry, and there's tons of it, both from the Revolutionary War and, and the War of 1812, is that the word slave is quite common. Um, and it's not about abolition. It's it's a reference to Um, being subject to the king. So the the thing that Americans didn't want to be is they didn't want to be subject to King George, right? They broke away from King George. And so they're If that third verse of the Star Spangled Banner lyric, that has four verses, we of course only sing the first one today. Um, The third verse is really mocking the British enemy. And the British are the bad guys. They are hirelings and slaves. Um, They are paid soldiers and they are people that are operating at the behest of their king rather than of their own free will, as opposed to the good guys, the American militia, who are but free volunteers, you know, who choose to fight for their homeland, of their own free will. And that idea of a volunteer army is really central to sort of American, you know, military um, structure and, and recruitment over time. I and mean, we, of course, had had drafts and, and things. But in the War of 1812, there were professional American soldiers defending Fort McHenry, but there were also there were a thousand militiamen um, defending the fort and then also in the city. So what's really being talked about is you know, whether you're a slave to a king. Now, it takes an incredible social myopia to use the word slave when there were actually people who were held captive as labor to use that word and not mean it ironically, to to be completely blind to the plight of black Americans in a national sort of patriotic lyric that you're publishing in the newspaper and thinking everybody's going to sing with pride, right? It, It basically is reflective of a white supremacist environment that only white men mattered like women couldn't vote black people couldn't vote right this is this is the place where francis got key and people who looked like him were the ones in control of the country and and that perspective is dominant in this in the the lyrics so on one hand i'm saying slave doesn't mean what we would assume it means on the other hand i'm saying that this doesn't give francis Scott key a free pass like it doesn't mean that he was enlightened and and somehow a, a secret activist who who saw the the problem of slavery. He's actually someone who's so embedded in a world that allows slavery that he could use that word as a rhyme in his lyric and and not be talking about actual slaves at all, but be talking about white men who didn't didn't have complete control of their lives because they had to do it another white man, King George, told them what to do. So it's it's a on one hand it's I think that lyric um, is not what we think it is. On the other hand, it actually reflects the same myopia and the same blindness to the the real experience of black Americans that we would assume it is. And uh, what I think should have happened is that in in World War one, it was actually um, that third verse was not included in any official, publications of the National Anthem. It was only verses one, two, and four of Key's original. Um, so I think actually that the 1931 bill, which was silent as to what the exact text of the Star-Spangled Banner was, it just says very briefly that the words in music known as the Star-Spangled Banner is the National Anthem of the United States. End of story. That's like the entire bill. It's like one sentence long. Um, and it was because nobody could agree or wanted to spend the time to figure out what was actually the Star-Spangled Banner musically or lyrically that they left it ambiguous. But that was because nobody thought it was con- going to be controversial. And that third verse was not included in government publications at the time. I think it would be really useful as an inclusive statement today to just make it official that that third verse is not part of the national anthem and just make that that understanding from 1931 the law of the land.
1: Well, that does bring up another question I had, which is, why did it take so long? Um, you know, it was sort of the unofficial anthem for a long time. Um, in the research that I do at the turn of the century, they talk about it as if it is the national anthem more often than not. But, um, and by 1931, the song had been around for over hundred years. So why did it take that long for the Congress to decide, we need a national anthem and this is going to be the national anthem?
0: No, that's a great question. And I, I have some ideas about that, but I, I don't know if I've come to the, if I even know the complete story. I mean, you're right that the Star spangled Banner functions as the national anthem long before it's made official. Um, and I, I pretty much tie that to January 4th, 1861, which was the date by law um, after in about 18, 19, 18, 20, that, that rule came up that every July 4th, you updated the flag to have, so that the number of states and, and stars would match. And that's that growing wave of patriotism we talked about earlier um so by in 1861 if we recognized the seceding southern states we would have had to remove 13 stars from the flag and we don't right so that the flag becomes the sacred symbol of union the, the song is the the musical symbol of union and it's used as a rallying cry and recruitment tool for the union army um that that ended slavery and, and preserved the union in in american history so this is that defining moment And so the song i think is treated as the national anthem really from that moment forward. Um, the earliest references I saw, I found in my research to the Star-Spangled Banner being the quote-unquote national anthem are from the 1830s as part of the nullification crisis. So it's it's um, it's been talked about as the anthem, you know, even before the Civil War. And certainly after the Civil War and into your period of research, that was really quite common was to treat it as the nation's anthem. So the thing that makes the song the anthem is how people use it. The, how it functions in American culture. It's not a bill in 1931. Um, interestingly, the, the person who put that bill and pushed it through was a, a senator named Charles Linthicum, and he was represented the Baltimore area Um he might've actually been a congressman now that I think about it, but it's, there's a way in which the history of the city of Baltimore, tourism, economic development are all wrapped together in finding sort of official sanction to this song, which was originally called the defense of Fort McHenry, which is really about the city of Baltimore. And as, as the, um, as Fort McHenry became a national landmark and tourism and all that gets wrapped up, I mean, there's a celebration in 1914 of the hundredth anniversary, the centennial of the song. That's like a huge trade fair that happens in Baltimore. And all these souvenir guides are put out. And it's a a big sort of economic development move. So so money and economic development are not far from the history of the anthem. I mean, just like in sports, we sing it at every one. It's to the economic interests of of professional sports to ally themselves with patriotism. So that's why there's the evergreen anthem started in World War II. So that's part of it. I mean, there's also a growing nationalism. I mean, if you think of some more pernicious forms of patriotism, the sort of coercive patriotism you have, you know, Charles Lindbergh and America First, like that, that rhetoric comes out of like 1928, 29, 30, you know, so there's this time in American history is a time of, you know, the Great Depression of real anxiety about, you know, people who are Jewish and people who are of color. Um, and all of those things are wrapped up into this this notion of of sort of asserting a a kind of true Americanness um, that I think the the Star Spangled Banner gets used for. I mean, as a symbol, it gets you know used and abused all the time. I mean, today it's it sort of seems to represent one party and not both parties in certain ways. But if you know if you go to if you look at like presidential debates or advertisements like. Every all candidates wear their flag pins, and they're all surrounded by American flags. It's like they're all sort of bathed in patriotism. Yet, if we see a you know a truck go down the road with with a. Flag sticker on the side. We make certain assumptions about the political leanings of that person driving, right? So it's it's this history of um, patriotism being sort of used to represent certain ideas or certain parties are against as a weapon to silence or exclude to try to define who the real Americans are. I mean, this is something that's gone. It has a long history in American politics. Um, you know, even that even predates the tune. The, the sorry, the keys lyric, but uses the same tune. I mean, the first song that made. The anachronic song, hugely popular in the United States, was from 1798. It was called "Adams and Liberty," and it was a Federalist Party anthem that was used to shout down the Democratic Republicans. You know, in in debates about um, sort of the primacy of of Britain or French in terms of your political leanings at the time. So, you know, th- on one hand, I think the use and misuse of patriotism um, gives me hope that the current situation where it's being abused um, is something we can survive. <laughs> but it's you know, for me, I think that living anthem idea that we, we started with in our conversation, part of it is speaks to the notion that the, the, the anthem really should be for all Americans, that it really should be a, a kind of it's not a love of your party. It's a love of a kind of promise to have the, the country fulfill its own values. And so that's where I see see this going. But I, that 1931 bill, I think, is is wrapped up in a lot of different agendas from a lot of different people. Um, and so that's one of the things about democracy: if you you can get a lot of people to say yes, but the yes doesn't always mean the same thing for the same reason.
1: Well, you're when you were talking so eloquently about how today often the the connotation of the flag, in particular has become highly politicized, um, and particularly in terms of who is flying it at their house or putting stickers of it on their car or whatever, and who isn't, um, that sort of ties in, in the way I was thinking about, um, towards the end of your book, you spent a lot of time talking about, um, the act of performing the, um, the song itself and how, Um, how different people have chosen to perform it at different times and how those different performances are received, often through um, a highly political lens. And there's way too many of them that you you discovered um, and talked about to talk about today, Um, but they go from very famous ones like the Jimi Hendrix um, performance you alluded to at the beginning of the interview to ones certainly that I was not familiar with um, that are much more, uh, that were a big deal at the moment but have received from popular memory. Can you maybe pick out one or two of those performances just to give our listeners a sense of um, some of the issues that are raised by different kinds of performances of the um, the anthem?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, part of the history of the anthem falls into like the 19th century versus the 20th century and 21st century. So the, the 19th century, the political use of the anthem was a lot about writing alternative lyrics. So there are there are anti-slavery lyrics, um, abolitionist lyrics, um, some of the most powerful lyrics actually I've ever read are this you know, from the song called "I Say Do You Hear," which is an abolitionist song written um, in Michigan. It was published in William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator in 1844. Um, there are women's suffrage lyrics. There are a lot of temperance lyrics um, that all use the tune. And they sort of build upon the tradition of Francis Scott Key, you know, writing a song that represents the nation to say, well, what if the nation were a little different? You know, what if what if the land of the free was actually true and everybody really was free um, and we wouldn't have slavery? So that that's sort of the way the 19th century political discourse works. And of course, this is an era before I Recording before technology sort of makes a single performance something that can move from place to place or that lots of people can experience. What happens in the 20th century is you get like national television, right? And so the performances at the Super Bowl, the performances at the Olympics, um, the performances at at the World Series are seen by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people throughout the United States and maybe even in the world. And so some of these iconic performances like Hendrix, which was um, immortalized in a documentary film, about Woodstock, it's sort of almost a climax to this, you know, extremely long documentary that's four or five hours long. Um, but something like Jose Feliciano at the nineteen sixty eight World Series, where he he sort of turns it into a pop song, um, sort of a soulful celebration for youth, um, rather than a kind of traditional, um, you know, th- three f- three four version of the anthem. And so one of the things, the myths, I try to to destabilizes the notion that there is a traditional version of the Star Spangled Banner. There's, in fact, maybe the, the primary musical feature of the national anthem is its musical flexibility. You can play it slow at a funeral. You can play it fast after a an you know, American victory in the Olympics. You can, you can play it um, in three, four and four, four. You can play it as sort of a bluesy number. You can play it as, as a, almost as like a romantic sexy song, which there's some, some versions are sometimes referred to. So it's, um you know, it's sort of amazing to me all the different ways that you can add commentary to the song stylistically. And so that's what happens in the 20th century is that in a sense, after it becomes the sacred anthem of the United States, you can no longer mess with the words, right? You have to treat it as a stable thing, but you can change the music in the ways that express personal devotion or that, that sort of undercut ironically, the music as a kind of political statement, which, you know, part of the, the sort of feedback strewn, um, pyrotechnics of Hendrix at Woodstock brings up the, the you know race rioting brings up the crisis in Vietnam and the way Americans are dying there. So there's there's ways you can add different commentary. Someone like Whitney Houston um, in 1991 at the Super Bowl, um, you know. Gives a pretty untraditional version. I mean, she adds a beat to every measure. There's a lot of sort of bluesy gospel-infused, inf- you know, melismas and sort of extra notes here and there um, that sound like Whitney. They don't sound like anything but Whitney Houston. So it's this incredibly personal version, um, but people heard it as maybe the, the greatest version ever, as as being the definition of what a traditional version is, even though it was actually not a traditional version in the the at least the least sense that which that song had been most commonly performed. But what they heard was the sincerity. And so that sincerity combined with the moment, like that was the first Gulf War, That was a real time of crisis, but also hope and, and sort of triumph in American military history, sort of all that fused together to create what people hear as the greatest, most traditional version um, ever. So... But I, I talk about like one of the, the th- versions which people don't know, which I find is just amazing, is this blue singer from Denver, Colorado named Renee Marie, who sings the melody of the Star Spangled Banner with the text of Lift Every Voice and Sing, the so-called blast, Black National Anthem by the Johnson Brothers um from 1900 which is a song ostensibly about lincoln it's a song about hope but at a time of real desperation rise of of sort of you know black codes and plessy versus ferguson like so many black rights are being eroded at a time in which the black national anthem is created to sort of express hope that things are going to get better that we have to keep on march on until victory is won and so renee marie who's a black woman who goes up i think in the philadelphia area i can't remember exactly but she heard both Lift Every Voice and Sing "In the Star Spangled Banner as a kid, and she tries to put them together as a unified statement and sort of creates a whole new sort of layer of, of musical commentary by mixing those two songs together. And then that's been done also by a classical composer named Jesse Montgomery, who wrote an orchestral piece called Banner, which also fuses actually a bunch of sort of um North and South American, you know, traditional folk, patriotic tunes, but also lift every voice and sing in the Starscream Banner. And then John Batiste, who just cleaned up at the Grammys a few months ago, but, you know, also put together lift every voice and sing. And the star span banner as a way of saying like black america is part of this musical dna of the country too like we're here and i think that's the interesting thing about all of these particularly african-american renditions of the anthem which are so musically powerful and drawn black musical idioms but they also make an identity claim they also say we're part of this country and you know someone like um nicole hannah jones you know talks about the fact that you know the united states has had these these ideals of freedom but generally hasn't lived up to it. And it's been black Americans who've insisted that the country actually make the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments true, right? Actually make equality true in practice. And so you can see sort of an amazing musical dialogue commenting on the current political moment by this conversation between the Star Spangled Banner and Left Every Voice and Sing.
1: Well, this is a great book, and I think you've done an amazing job of bringing so many issues into bear on this one one song. Um, it is, uh, I think, a good time to start wrapping up our conversation. And, you know, since you have finished this huge project, a nice big book like this, what have you decided to work on next?
0: Well, yeah, this project—I mean, this book—is really more than a decade in the making. Um, one of the things I'm definitely going to do is is try to, you know, repackage the insights of the book into smaller pieces that can be used by um, K twelve teachers throughout the country. I'm looking ahead to the two hundred fiftieth anniversary of the country. Since the bicentennial meant so much to me, I'm going to try to. Lay lay the groundwork for some people in uh, 2026 to really explore what it means to be American through the Star-Spangled Banner. Um, I'm also working on a bunch of other projects. Uh, You know, we just got an NEH grant renewal for the George and Ira Gershwin Critical Edition here at the University of Michigan, so we're wrapping up. The orchestral versions, or orchestral pieces, there are six of them, and starting to move into the musical theater pieces, which I think is going to be really exciting. And then I'm working on a collaborative project with some of my colleagues here at the University of Michigan um, called "Singing Justice," which is looking at Black American song and the ways in which. Um, this not only tells us things about like the Lift Every Voice and Sing" and, and a little bit about American history, but can be a way to infuse uh, music school curriculum with a more diverse repertory and a and sort of broader understanding of American music. So, that that book is uh, going to be jointly written. It's sort of an interesting exercise as a humanist to be working with other scholars and trying to do collaborative work. Um, but I think it has been just an amazing experience for me to work so closely with some of my colleagues and with many, many different perspectives. And, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to that project.
1: Well, that all sounds exciting, especially trying to find ways to give this information to K-12, K-12 teachers. I will mention that you also have an amazing website that um, take, brings together a lot of uh, sort of the basic information in this book in a way that's um, really useful as a teacher. I've used it myself and just as anyone who's interested in in the banner and in its history and the Star-Spangled Banner's history. So um, you certainly have uh, really taken this as a public music, uh, musicology challenge and, um, to teach other people about this, um, this song that I think you make a great case for being, uh, really at the heart of how we've constructed what it means to be an American, um, and what the United States really is. Um, so, uh, it it sounds like you've got some great work ahead of you to continue that, that project. So thank yeah, you so much. I'll for...
0: certainly keep updating the Star Spangled. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the starspangledmusic.org website, right? So I um, just wanted to mention the name and I'll definitely continue to update update that with new information as it comes to me
1: oh well that's great to hear so um thank you so much for joining me today um and my name is kristen turner this is the new books and music podcast a podcast of the new books network and today i've talked to mark clegg author of oh say can you hear a cultural biography of the star-spangled banner published by norton in 2022 thank you so much for joining me today
0: my pleasure